Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll get some historical perspective on the nation's fiscal path and take a look at the challenges ahead. We'll be talking with Brian Riedel, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tori Gorman will join the conversation. Before joining the Manhattan Institute, where he focuses on budget tax and economic policy, Brian Riedel worked for six years as chief economist to Senator Rob Portman of Ohio. And he also served as staff director of the Senate Finance Subcommittee on Fiscal Responsibility and economic growth. Today, we're going to be talking about a set of charts that Brian produced uh, for the Manhattan Institute, where he works. And you can find those charts at manhattaninstitute.org or just Google Brian Riedel and charts and they'll probably show up. Brian and Tori, welcome back to Facing the Future. Great to be here, Bob. You know, uh, uh, Brian, you recently released a uh, comprehensive set of charts on the federal budget, looking at uh, looking back on some historical trends and projections of current law and also some selected policy options about things we could do. Uh, uh, there's over 100 charts. Unfortunately, we, we can't show them on the air, <laughs> so, but um, we can certainly discuss the analysis that went into them and uh, some of the conclusions. And so that's where I want to begin. As we talk about some of the charts, we can sort of weave in how they relate to um, to what's going on in Washington. Um, and there are so many charts, but but just to get started, uh, you know, one one area of the of the chart talk is is about the uh, what's driving the projected deficits over the the cumulative thirty years. You've you've got about one hundred twelve trillion dollar uh, of projected deficits over the next 30 years. And we don't always look back. We, we're always talking about what's happening on Washington on the Hill. But, but what is that, uh, you know, what's, what's driving that? What's the story behind that? Well, th thanks, Bob. It, it's a good question because you throw out numbers like $112 trillion in projected deficits over 30 years. That's such a huge number. It's almost incomprehensible. You know, I mean, right now, the debt held by the public is about 23 trillion. So the idea of adding 112 trillion is really incomprehensible. And people can ask, well, where's all that borrowing come from? And really it's, the issue is, it's not coming from necessarily from taxes. Tax revenues are gonna continue rising as a percent of the economy. It's not gonna come from discretionary spending. That's falling as a percent of the economy. And in fact, most entitlement programs are kind of holding steady as the percent of the economy. So where's all this debt coming from? really mostly two programs, Social Security and Medicare. <coughs> Excuse me. The, the issue with Social Security and Medicare is people pay into the system, but the premiums and payroll taxes aren't enough to pay the benefits for all the retirees. 
So as 74 million boomers retire into Social Security and Medicare, they have to supplement it with general revenues. They're gonna, Washington is gonna have to transfer general revenues into Social Security and Medicare to pay the benefits that just your payroll taxes and Medicare premiums can't cover. And it's the cost of those transfers into Social Security and Medicare that are driving virtually the entire $112 trillion shortfall. For example, Social Security is gonna run about a $21 trillion cash shortfall, which is then gonna, because we're gonna have to borrow a lot of that money, it's gonna, it's gonna in turn add 14 trillion in interest. So that's $35 trillion in outside revenues that we're gonna need because of Social Security. Medicare is even worse. It's gonna require $46 trillion in general revenues, and that's gonna create an interest cost of 31 trillion. So that's 78 trillion from, from Medicare that's gonna be required in general revenues. Another way of looking at it is if you just look at like percentage of the economy, Social Security and Medicare in 30 years are gonna be collecting 6% of GDP in payroll taxes and revenues, but spending 21% of GDP in terms of benefits and resulting interest costs. Well, when you have two programs running a deficit of 15% of GDP, there's your long-term deficit. The rest of the budget at that point will be in surplus. But when you have two programs running a 15% of GDP shortfall, there's your long-term deficit. So just two quick uh, clarifying points here, Brian. Number one, you talk about the, these numbers, like $121 trillion in deficits over the next 30 years, and, and how people's minds just go, that's just so unbelievable. I think it's important to point out that these are not your numbers, right? They come from the Congressional Budget Office, which is the scoring agency for Congress, correct? I mean, you might do the arithmetic, but these are not your forecasts, right? Correct. This is just straight out of the Congressional Budget Office, which is a nonpartisan agency within Congress, very credible on both sides, ran these numbers themselves. And I, I just I just divided it up into where it's going. And in fact, this is the CBO's rosy scenario. This assumes no new spending expansions, no new tax cuts, um, no new wars, no major recessions. This is this is just the cost of doing what we're doing on current law. Second question is, I know we have run into a lot of people that really don't understand the problem with drawing down the, the assets, the bonds held by the Social Security and Medicare trust funds. How come that doesn't help the situation at all? The Social Security trust fund has about $3 trillion right now. What that means is that from 1983 to 2009, Social Security ran a surplus of about three to three and a half trillion dollars, but they didn't really save that money, they spent it, which means that now the taxpayers have to repay that three and three to three and a half trillion dollars to Social Security. First off, three trillion dollars is not that much in the context of $112 trillion in borrowing. Even if we had saved that money, it really wouldn't have made a huge difference. But even then, because it was already spent, there isn't a mountain of $3 trillion uh, that's available to draw to, to, pay it, to, to pay out these benefits. It represents money that has to be repaid out of tax dollars. Now, the trust fund matters from a legal sense in that people are owed these benefits. But in terms of actual having the money to pay it out, 
there really isn't $3 trillion. It's IOUs that will be paid in general revenues, just like the other $109 trillion. Right. So we think yeah. those of us that work with the federal budget, we think about the trust fund as an accounting construct, right? right. It represents money that we owe, but those bonds that are held by the Social Security and Medicare trust funds are not sort of economic assets that you can then just, you know, redeem for cash the way you could a different type of bond, right? It just means that Treasury is going to take that bond from the Social Security trust fund and say, I'm going to have to go borrow debt from the public markets in order to pay money to Social Security. So you're basically exchanging internal debt, right, with mm -hmm. external debt. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and one way to think of it is, People will point out that $3 trillion is an asset for Social Security. Well, it's a liability for the taxpayers <laughs> who are paying it back. So it doesn't, it, it's, it's good for the program, but it's still got to be paid. Yeah, so it depends on which hat you wear. Are you the Treasury Secretary or the, uh, or the uh, Social Security Commissioner? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and one of the other things about the trust fund, we're assuming with these numbers that the programs will continue to pay benefits even after the trust funds are exhausted because you mentioned the legal significance of the trust funds, which is basically giving it them a, an automatic draw on the, on the treasury. Uh, now, when the trust funds run dry, technically speaking, Medicare Part A and Social Security don't have any um, uh, authority to, to write checks beyond the, the money that's coming in. So some people argue, well, you shouldn't use those long-term numbers because there is no authority for Social Security to uh, pay beyond that. So really, you know, these numbers are exaggerated, but making that assumption means what? Like across the board benefit cuts or something like that. Right, right, exactly. I mean, under current law, when you, you actually had the trust fund exhaust itself for Social Security in the early 2030s, you would have about a 21% across the board cut in benefits. The Congressional Budget Office assumes <clears throat> that Congress would not actually allow a 21% across the board cut in benefits, especially when up to that point, they're already going to be using general revenues to close the shortfalls anyway. And what CBO was assuming is you're just going to keep using general revenues to close the shortfall, just like you were in the 2020s and that you're just gonna keep keep doing that. I think that's a fair assumption. And those who say, don't worry about the long-term deficit because, because they're not gonna pay benefits beyond that point, what they're saying is don't worry about social security because we're gonna cut seniors 20%. I doubt those individuals are actually endorsing that outcome. Yeah, I, 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 think, uh, I think not. And, and we can see that uh, precedent being set now with the Highway Trust Fund, I mean, that, that's supposed to exist just on the incoming revenue from the gas tax, which hasn't been raised in quite some time. And Congress just routinely authorizes general revenues to, to go into the highway trust fund, which has become, you know, less, more, more and more general revenue financed program. And I think that's giving us a signal, the canary in the mine shaft, so to speak, of what might happen with Social Security and Medicare as they become more general revenue financed. Well, in addition to that, Congress just spent $80 billion bailing out a private pension fund that was going bankrupt, uh, the Teamsters. If they're going to spend $80 billion to bail out a private pension fund, you can be sure they're not going to let Social Security go under. And just a quick vocabulary yeah. lesson here. We, you know, we keep talking about general revenues, and I just want to make sure people understand that's taxpayer revenue, right? That's the, the, the money that you send to the government 
uh, your income taxes, you know, at, at every year. So I don't, I, I, you know, voters have a stakehold uh, in in general revenue transfers to the highway trust fund, to social security, to Medicare. It's the tax revenue. In addition that you're paying to the payroll taxes, it's the income taxes that you're paying. So. And, and as you pointed out, Brian, rev, it's revenues are slated to grow in these projections. They don't assume a freeze in revenues. They do assume that they will continue to grow and even grow faster than the economy, uh, but just not by anywhere near enough to keep up with the projected growth of the spending. Exactly. Revenues are about seven, have been about 17% of GDP for the last 50 years. They're projected to grow to about 18.5% of GDP over the next 30 years, slightly above average. And so it'd have to go up like into the mid 20s uh, percentage of GDP, which would be unprecedented for, for this country. It doesn't mean it wouldn't happen. It's just uh, meaning that these numbers are in a different, uh, just a, a totally different uh, category than, than, than we're used to. Um, you've got an intriguing uh, chart that says why the deficit, which is of course the annual shortfall as opposed to the debt, why the deficit could top three trillion yet again within a decade. Now, some some history here is that we are, you know, we're about at a three trillion dollar deficit this year. I think the fiscal year ended at just a, a little bit under three trillion, um, and uh, we understand that all of that, not all of that, a lot of that uh, is uh, COVID-related spending. Uh, so you, you sort of take 2020 and 2021 and probably uh, a significant part of 2022 and just say, okay, that's an anomaly. Uh, instead of $3 trillion deficit where, you know, steady state is like only uh, around 1 trillion, but you're saying that the, the baseline deficit could hit the 3 trillion again within 10 years. Yeah, I mean, the, the baseline, again, just, you know, the, the cost of current law the deficit will rise to about 1.8 trillion over over 10 by, by 10 years from now about 1.8 trillion dollars if we assume the tax cuts are extended and i'm not sure even the democrats are ready to let the middle class portion of the tax cuts expire from 2017 that bumps you up to about 2.2 2.3 trillion dollars at the end of 10 years there's two scenarios that could push that even higher over 3 trillion number one if interest rates rise uh, the CBO assumes that the interest rate paid on this debt will be 1.9% over the decade. We hope they're right. We hope it doesn't rise, but interest rates historically have this annoying tendency to fluctuate. If they rise <laughs> one point in the 10th year, that adds another $430 billion to the deficit. That gets you up to $2.7 trillion. And then if they rise even higher, you can get into $3 trillion. A second scenario that could combine with this is the president's uh, proposals. Uh, the pre President Biden has proposed in total about, about $8.8 trillion in new borrowing over the decade. And if you combine that with uh, uh, the, the baseline, you could also get to about $3 trillion in deficits by, 20, by 2031 if interest rates rise a little bit. So there's really two things going on, or a couple of things, you have the tax cuts being possibly being extended, you have the Biden agenda, and you have the possibility that interest rates might rise. Any, say, two of those could push interest rates up towards about $3 trillion, or sorry, could push the deficit to $3 trillion by, by 10 years from now. 
So you raise the Biden the- agenda is going to. I was just going to say the Biden agenda is going to cost nothing. That's what he told us. <laughs> uh, I, All right, uh, that's just an observation, Tori. <laughs> Well, we, we we brought so Brian brought up the Biden agenda, and you know one of the interesting things about the his his proposals is he's proposing a lot of these revenue increases in order to pay for these new programs that he's putting together. Um, as someone who has long been involved in in uh, debt and deficit politics and trying to get us to be more responsible, I, I'm I'm literally banging my head against the wall in that we're finally at a place where we're talking about revenue increases. Um, but we're using those revenue increases to finance new programs rather than try and solve the problem that we know is staring us in the face. Um, Brian, can you tell us whether or not whether these these revenue uh, measures that the Biden administration is proposing, could they if we were to sort of pivot, you know, if, 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 if like the skies parted and, and donkeys flew and and we succeeded in getting our message through that that, that we needed to address uh, our current unfunded liabilities before creating new ones. Could these new revenue uh, measures that the Biden administration is talking about, could they fill the hole that we're, we're staring at? Unfortunately, there's there's not enough revenue being proposed that would close the deficit. Um, the baseline deficit over the next decade is about $12 trillion. And, and that's pure baseline. Even that assumes the 2017 tax cuts expire. At least the portion that is scheduled to expires. You have about $12 trillion in deficits over 10 years. The entire universe of President Biden tax increases. This is everything that he has proposed in his legislation, as well as what he proposed during the campaign, but hasn't gotten to in legislation. Mm-hmm. Well, in the campaign, he talked about assessing uh, social security taxes on income over $400,000. So he still has he still has that to go. If you take all of his tax increases from the campaign and from his presidency, it raises about $4 trillion, according to the Tax Policy Center, over 10 years. And again, I just mentioned the baseline deficit is $12 trillion. So even if you did all of them, you're still only closing about a third of the deficit. But what's scary is he's not using these tax increases to close the deficit. He's using them to pay for additional spending. Mm -hmm. Uh, This year alone, Democrats are looking to pass between six to eight trillion dollars in new proposals. And that's if you do if you do the the full universe of what they're doing on the March stimulus, infrastructure, reconciliation, discretionary spending, six to eight trillion. And then there's about three or four trillion dollars more in campaign proposals that are still coming in the next year or two. So in that context, the four trillion dollars in tax increases, aren't even going to cover the new stuff, much less address the $12 trillion in underlying deficits. And that's why, if you just put it all together, the debt held by the public was $17 trillion before the pandemic. It's likely to top $40 trillion a decade from now um, under the president's proposals, because the taxes he's proposing, which are huge and historic um, in size comparatively, don't come close to keeping up with both the baseline deficits and all the new things Democrats want to spend the money on today. It's kind of hard when you silo your tax increases among a very narrow segment of the population, right? That part of the problem is that all of his tax increases are on large multinational corporations and high net worth individuals. And they're just, they're not enough, pardon 
the, there aren't enough bodies there, right? They're not, a, there's just not enough money there. I mean, I know that's hard to believe, um, but when it comes time to closing the gap in social security and Medicare, you know, the law of large numbers says that we're just, we're gonna have to think bigger and broader in terms of, of spending cuts and revenue increases. Absolutely. We're gonna have to, I gotta, mm -hmm. I gotta take the first break here, Brian. So <laughs> hold that thought. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Brian Riedel, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute about the past, the present, and the future of U.S. fiscal policy. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and I are talking with Brian Riedel, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and former chief economist to Senator Rob Portman of Ohio. He was also the staff director of the Senate Finance Subcommittee on Fiscal Responsibility and Economic Growth. Uh, and uh, in our cliffhanger, before we took the break, uh, Tori had just uh, teed up a question for you. Brian, Tori, do you want to restate that so uh, our listeners know where we are? I guess I just really wanted to drill home the point that you know, when you when when you silo your revenue increases among uh, just a narrow set of subset of, of individuals, whether it's high net worth individuals or or large multinational co corporations, you know, you 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 can't close the gap with what we know exists uh, going forward between Social Security, Medicare, and and everything else, and that just the law of large numbers. When we finally comes time to addressing Social Security and Medicare, we're going to need to talk about broader uh, spending adjustments and broader revenue adjustments in order to make the numbers meet. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think one weakness of the progressive movement right now is that they keep talking about how if we just tax the rich and tax corporations, we can pay for the entire wish list. I have a chart or a table in my chart book that adds up every single progressive tax hike proposal that I could find. Everything from 70% income tax rates, um, paying social security taxes on income all the way up, um, the 8% wealth tax, the 77% estate tax, a carbon tax, financial institutions tax, corporate taxes. I added up every single item, even stuff that duplicates each other and brooks marginal tax rates up close to 100% for some individuals. It wouldn't even balance the budget, much less pay for all the new spending being proposed. It doesn't even come close. You know, another angle on that is if you took every penny earned in America over $500,000 in income, um, it would raise about 5% of GDP in revenues. Well, we're facing deficits that are heading towards six, seven, eight percent in GDP. And that's if everybody kept working. <laughs> that's like, if you just took every dollar earned over 500,000 and everybody keeps working just the same, you still couldn't balance the budget. And so the reality is Europe discovered long ago that the only way to really finance a European style social democracy is with huge taxes on the middle class. That is value added taxes, which are basically like a national sales tax, payroll taxes, broad-based taxes are really where most of the money is. 
And ultimately, if America wants to spend closer to European levels, we're going to have to build a tax system much like European levels. And the middle class in the United States is not ready for that. We tax the middle class much less than other countries do. And, and sure, you can raise taxes on the rich somewhat. I'm not saying you can't do it at all. But ultimately, just mathematically speaking, most of the money is going to have to come from payroll taxes, value-added taxes, and income taxes on the middle class. You know, I think that um, the numbers, if people don't care much about uh, percentage of GDP or, you know, whatever, but, but, but you can understand numbers. I mean, just if you follow sports or something and think of it as a, in terms of a score, we tend, you know, spending has averaged about 20 and revenues have averaged about 17. So, you know, spending is uh, is winning over revenues by about three points, just, you know, over the past 50 years or so on average. And what we're saying is, and your charts are showing that in the future, just under current law, under what's projected to happen with uh, Social Security, Medicare and healthcare costs, spending is, is the spending score goes up to about 25 or whatever, even maybe higher. Uh, and revenues, even if they go up to about 18 or 19 or 20, it's, it's not keeping pace. And the gap is just getting larger and larger. That's, that's kind of where the, the, the numbers are. And what I wanted to ask, I wanted to sort of drop back because we're having quite a debate on the Democratic side, basically, about how extensive the um, expansion of the social safety net should be, how much should it cost, how much of that should be paid for. Um, and it's by anybody's uh, reckoning a, a, a very ambitious agenda of, of things to do. Um, on the Republican side, there's obviously universal opposition to this. But I'm wondering what would be or, or is there a, kind of a Republican policy agenda response uh, to, to, to what's going on? Are, 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 what, are, what are the issues that are legitimate issues that are being considered, but there are things that Republicans would suggest doing in a different way? Well, I, I could say I, I worked in the Senate for six years. Tori worked in the Senate a long time too. And so I, I know she's going to uh, uh, see this. And I, even today, I talk to Republican lawmakers and staffs virtually every day. And Republican lawmakers fully understand that the long-term budget is unsustainable. They fully understand that Social Security and Medicare are driving it and need to be reformed. But they are terrified to talk about it. And they're absolutely even more terrified to put out a plan to address this. I think if Republicans were asked in their heart of hearts, what would you do to fix the budget? They would say, reform Social Security and Medicare You know, on Social Security, raise the eligibility age, care back benefits for the wealthy, um, on Medicare, raise the premiums that wealthy seniors pay, maybe bring in more choice and competition into the Medicare system to, to rein in costs, and then hold the line on other programs. You can't balance the budget by through the other, other programs, but I think a lot of Republicans would say limit the growth and get rid of waste elsewhere. But they won't talk about this publicly for several reasons. Number one, when you're in the opposition, you don't need to to give a solution. That, that's the politics we are always told about. When you're in the opposition, keep the focus on why the majority is bad and don't give up your own proposal because that could, that could foster disagreement 
just just keep throwing bombs. So that's that's the first reason they won't they won't do it because it's easier to be the party of no than the party of here's our solution. The second reason they won't is because Republicans cut taxes in 2017 and every time they talk about deficits, the first question asked to them by reporters or Democrats is if you're so concerned about deficits, why don't you start by repealing your darn tax cuts? And Republicans that I talk to get so sick of being called out on somewhat a hip, what is fairly called a hypocritical uh, activity, a hypocritical policy for as much as I like a lot of the tax cuts policies, there is some deficit hypocrisy there. They're so tired of being called out on the hypocrisy that they just stop talking about deficits um, because they don't want to repeal the tax cuts. And the third reason Republicans don't talk about it is because Social Security and Medicare reform, which they understand would have to lead, is extraordinarily unpopular. Um, there was a poll in 2016 that said only 15% of Republicans supported Medicare reform and only 10% of Republicans supported Social Security reform. And Donald Trump got elected saying, we're not gonna touch Social Security and Medicare. And the Republican Party has since become pop, more populist and grayer and older and more attached to these spending programs. And so the Paul Ryan wing has kind of been driven out of the party. And the GOP of these days is a bigger government party. You put all that together, Republicans aren't going to talk about this. I'm not defending Republicans. I think it's cowardice. But that's that's where they are. OK, so that brings me to a question. And I've, I've made this point on several uh, shows before, and that is, what you know what role do voters play in this stasis and this inability to, to address our debt and deficit problems and that they aren't giving lawmakers the space, the leeway, the attention that they need to talk about here's the problem, here are some solutions. Yeah, I mean we, we need a Ross Perot. Um, I'm dating myself. Ross Perot ran for president in 1992, um, and he held up charts about deficits and debt and unsustainability. We need First, we need lawmakers who will actually talk about it and educate the public, because if, they're not, if the public doesn't understand it, they're not going to push lawmakers to reform it. You need, you need lawmakers who will actually do public education on this. And then from that point, you need voters who will demand tough choices. Voters talk a good game on deficit reduction right after they're done talking about why they need their tax cuts and spending hikes. <laughs> Ultimately, the voters have to push for this. What scares me is I don't think voters are going to get motivated to care about this until we already have some sort of fiscal or economic crisis. That's, it's going to take that to probably wake them up. And the difficulty is once that happens, it's too late to fix easily. It's kind of like saying, I'll start worrying about global warming after temperatures have already hit a certain point and caused a certain number of damage. It's a lot easier to fix it earlier than to wait until the problem has already started. But we need lawmakers to do public education and we need voters to think long-term on budget, just like a lot of them like to think long-term on issues like climate. So one of the things that I think might be different this time around is that insolvency with Medicare and, and Social Security trust funds, you know, that that's going to happen within the next 10 to 12 years. Right. And that's going to affect 
people that are on Social Security and Medicare right now. I mean, there are people that are that are qualifying and rolling on to those programs right now. Presumably, you know, given the way Americans, you know, live in retirement many, many, many years, it's quite possible that people that are rolling on to Social Security and Medicare right now are going to still be collecting Social Security and Medicare when those two trust funds exhaust themselves. So you'd think that they'd want to have a discussion about, um, excuse me, there's a problem here. Um, excuse me, what is your proposal for resolving this? Do you think that yeah, might that, change things? I would hope. I mean, unless unless they, they just believe that Congress will quietly switch to general revenue bailouts and there'll be no concern that Congress would actually allow their benefits to be cut. That's an area where I wish groups like AARP were more active. Groups like AARP should be should be warning seniors and saying we need to save these programs for the long term because you don't even want to take the risk that you're going to hit the insolvency date and have these across the board benefit cuts. Instead, there's this complacency that Congress will just bail it out later. I, I would love to, to shake, shake up that complacency and have people realize that sustainability is not guaranteed. It matters. And by the way, even if they do do a general revenue bailout, it's going to be because your taxes have gone through the roof, uh, and, or, or at least your kids or grandkids' taxes have gone through the roof. That's not sustainable either. And part of the, the problem there, right, with general revenues is that when you're using general revenues to prop up Social Security and Medicare, you're also competing with other programs for, for, for those monies. I, you envision a scenario where, you know, are, are we engaged in aggression with China? Are we engaged in aggression with Russia 10 years from now? And is the, do suddenly we have defense needs that far surpass, uh, you, know, you know, how do you prioritize do we fund our soldiers who are trying to halt Chinese aggression or Russia aggression or terrorism here domestically? You know, or do we pay our Social Security beneficiaries and our Medicare benefits? You set up this competition between some very, very important priorities. And it's not just things like defense. You know, I tell a lot of my friends on the left are a little more complacent about Social Security and Medicare. And I tell them, if it's important to you to spend money on low-income individuals, social programs, education, uh, childcare, family leave, the reason that these programs are being squeezed long-term is because of Social Security and Medicare. We are prioritizing, you know, in some places, you know, very generous benefits for very wealthy seniors over kids, the poor, and social programs. I mean, you look back at the, the Budget Control Act in 2011. And the deficit was rising and people saw long-term Social Security and Medicare deficits, and they responded by cutting discretionary spending by a projected trillions of dollars over 10 years. They didn't touch Social Security and Medicare, or at least Medicare, there was a little, little, little tiny haircut that barely got noticed. They responded by going after not just defense, but social programs to make room for it. And if, if you know, I tell a lot of Democrats, if you want family leave and childcare and education and, and student loans and cheaper college, you can't do it if you're spending $112 trillion in general revenue transfers for seniors. Well, we're going to have to leave it there this week, but you know we're going to be revisiting this uh, this topic uh, over and over again because it's not a problem that's going to go away anytime soon. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and Tori Gorman and I have been talking with Brian Riedel, 
senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute about the future of U.S. fiscal policy. Brian, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Tori. And Tori and I will be right back with uh, Concord's chief economist, Steve Robinson, after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, uh, and I'm joined by Tori Gorman and uh, Steve Robinson. Tori's our policy director. Steve is the chief economist of the Concord Coalition. And uh, so we're going to wrap up some events in, in Washington. Uh, first thing is, uh, gee, good news. The, uh, the fiscal year ended September 30th, and the Congressional Budget Office says that the deficit for the year came in under $3 trillion. Well, <laughs> at, <laughs> at about $2.8 trillion. Uh, not uh, particularly grounds for celebration, but the... Uh, uh, the, the, the good news, I guess, is that revenues came in higher than anticipated. Uh, outlays came in about the same as anticipated. And of course, much of the new spending, much of this is uh, driven by much higher spending. We're still dealing with the COVID expenditures. So uh, this year's numbers, like last year's numbers, are grossly inflated by that uh, and probably will be next year as well. But uh, just uh, you know, if you want to look at some good news, uh, revenues have uh, held up pretty well, uh, despite the hits to the economy from from uh, from COVID. Mm -hmm. um, so, Tori, aside from that uh, sliver of good news, there <laughs> was, uh, maybe maybe another sliver of good news was on the debt ceiling. Sure, it uh, looks like we the. Um... Republicans and Democrats came to a, a short-term deal on the debt limit last week, and the Senate Republicans agreed not to, to filibuster a piece of legislation that would increase the statutory debt limit by $480 billion. The House is expected to pass that legislation today. I think what's notable uh, about this deal is that for the first time in a long time, um, the legislation actually increases the numerical limit of, of the debt limit rather than just suspending it for a, a period of time. What makes this different is that we're not exactly sure then you know, when, when the debt limit is actually gonna start to constrain again. There are some estimates that it could become a factor again in late November, early December, which would set it up to be an issue alongside of, of funding the government for the rest of the fiscal year. You remember we're operating under a continuing resolution that expires on December 3rd. But then there are some estimates that say the debt limit uh, would last uh, until you know, January-ish, uh, which would allow those two issues, funding the government and the debt limit to, de to decouple again. So we'll, we'll see, time will tell. And I think uh, they said it at a fairly low number. That's not gonna allow treasury much room to reset their so-called uh, extraordinary measures by which they keep under the debt limit. That is correct. That is correct. So when that debt limit starts to constrain, it will have to be an issue that Congress addresses right away because they're not going to have the sort of the fudge time, the leeway, if you will, they, they would have in other instances, because Treasury had these extraordinary measures that they could deploy to preserve cash and continue to pay bills, that 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 those options will not be available to them. Um, so Congress is going to have to ask, act and act quickly. 
Steve, uh, looking at the economy, um, there's an important inflation report coming out that involves Social Security COLAs, correct? Yeah, this, this month, uh, it's October, so the inflation number for September will be coming out this week. And the way uh, Social Security COLAs work, they're based on the third quarter of each year. So that will be the month of July, August, and September. Now, we know from July and August that inflation is running around 5% over the previous third quarter of last year. So assuming the September number that will be announced this week comes in in the 5% range, then everybody who is receiving Social Security will get a 5% cost of living adjustment, which will be effective um, in January of, of, of next year, 2022. So Is that going to bump up uh, Social Security outlays beyond what CBO and the trustees were anticipating? Um, I, you know, I, I don't think that their inflation estimate for the coming year was much different than that. I'd, I'd have to go back and check. I don't actually recall, but yeah, obviously when you estimate inflation, making budget projections, you have no idea what it's gonna turn out to be. So they could have underguessed or overguessed. And I, I actually don't recall their precise estimate, but 5% is probably roughly in the range of- There's this another- This is still a big COLA adjustment though, isn't it? I mean, I remember years, not too distant past. I mean, we're looking at years where we had no COLA increase because there was no inflation or, you know, somewhere less than 2%. So 5% is pretty big. Yeah, it's it's the largest we've had in quite some time. One of the other things that's been going up uh, and not not too subtly, not too slowly is uh, interest uh, costs on um, you know the, the the interest rate on uh, on on treasury securities um that's that's creeping up also right yeah i mean the 10 10 year treasury rates are up at 1 1.6 and you know you just have to wonder i mean if fi- if inflation really is 5% and the interest rate on 10 year treasuries is 1.6 i mean you're talking about an, you're, you're actually earning a, a real negative return and the question is at what point markets are going to say okay if this inflation continues do I really want to lend money to the government at 1.6 when inflation is five and I'm losing money? Now, obviously right now, the markets still think that that 5% inflation is transitory and that will eventually go away. And so they're not pushing treasury rates up, you know, to, to be roughly equal. But, you know, if inflation continues to hold, at some point, the treasury rates are going to go up and they're going to be, you know, much more substantial than they are now at, at one six. That's one of the vulnerabilities in the budget right now is, is running up all the debt that uh, has very, very low interest rates. And if it has to be rolled over at higher rates, that's certainly gotta be a, uh, a bigger cost to the, to the government, higher than, than the baseline perhaps. So everybody will be keeping an eye on, on that number. Um, Tori, we, we were talking uh, a little bit ago about a uh, if we didn't have enough to worry about a potential energy crunch coming up this winter. Uh, this is all having to do with higher oil prices and supply chain problems. But what 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 kind of mix is in in the uh, in the offing there? It's really interesting. I've I've been reading a couple of of articles and papers about what to expect this this winter time regarding uh, energy prices, and apparently the the risk is rather high 
for an energy crunch this winter time. Uh, it's it's a, a tribute to a couple of factors. You know, normally you think about things like gas prices, which are high during the summer travel months, but they have a tendency to fall in the in fall in the fall, if you will, and they're not falling. You know, gas prices are up, uh, oil prices are up on the on the commodities markets, and you start to scratch your head and 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 wonder why. And uh, in reading some of these articles, it's a couple of factors. Um, number one, if you go back to remembering when the the Fukushima uh, nuclear plant nuclear reactor in Japan. Uh, was destroyed by a, a tsunami. Um, concern about nuclear energy around the globe uh, took hold. Fear uh, about meltdowns elsewhere, and people took governments took their their nuclear reactors offline without replacing them with any other alternative forms of energy creation. So that sort of created a, a, a crunch right there in, in the supply of energy. Um, but then also COVID comes along and creates this supply chain bottleneck. You know, for a long time, goods and services just weren't moving. And then the economy rebounded a lot faster than, than, than people expected. And the, the, the supply industry, uh, you know, the, basically the, 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 the transportation systems that are responsible for getting uh, crude oil from one point to another just has not been able to reduce that backlog. Um, you've got container ships that are stuck out in ports in China and ports in the United States and ports in Europe, and they just can't get, you know, to the, to the ports to offload their, their products fast enough. There's just not enough trucks. There's not enough boats. There's not enough, uh, uh, capacity at, at the harbors and at the refineries. And so they're just really having a hard time unwinding the, the backlog, uh, and the, 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 the gridlock created by, the shutdown associated with the coronavirus a year ago. Well, that uh, on, on, on that jolly note, we're going to have to uh, get back to that subject uh, again as, as, as events unfold. That's all the time we have this week. I want to thank uh, Tori and Steve for joining me in this final segment with a quick wrap up and Brian Riedel, our earlier guest, for his perspectives. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.